Today on the Ticket Tapes, we hear from Dr. Richard Izzet, BHF-funded researcher and senior pediatric perfusionist at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children in London. There are incredible highs and there are devastating lows with what we do. And you either swing from one to the other depending on how things go. Luckily, there's not that many lows and there's far more successes these days. For a lot of them, you think, well, actually, I won't need to see you again, which is a lovely thing as much as anything else, because you think actually I've given that parent a child that is now, you know, in all intents and purposes, they'll be able to go home and have a normal life. And I think that to me is probably the thing that I'm sort of most proud of in my sort of day-to-day job and being able to just give that sort of present of a future. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Leanne Gregg. On the ticket tapes, we hear from people researching or living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Dr. Richard Izzet shares his personal connection to paediatrics, the discoveries he has made in his research, and how his job saves thousands of lives every year. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me on the Ticket Tapes today. Really chuffed to have you. So you're a perfusionist, which is not really a job many people have heard of. So tell us, what is a perfusionist? So a perfusionist is somebody who looks after the heart lung bypass machines. So when a surgeon needs to make a surgical repair of the inner structure of the heart, they need to have a heart that is not beating and remains still. And so we control the machinery that essentially takes function of the heart and the lungs. We make sure the patient gets enough oxygen, make sure that we remove enough carbon dioxide and keep that blood flowing around the patient uh, at a required rate. So yeah, I remember when we first met, you told me it's like being a glorified plumber. And I remember thinking that was a good way to remember it. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. Um, it's quite a practical subject. Um, we deal with lots of tubing. Uh, you have to make sure that the blood is the right temperature. It's um, so that you know you have to deal with similar issues that you would do in plumbing in terms of airlocks, uh, etc. So it, it is very much like being a glorified plumber. Uh, it's just we deal with blood rather than water, which is it's quite good fun. <laughs> yeah, it's very important as well. Not that our plumbing isn't as important. <laughs> um, so you work at Great Ormond Street Hospital for children in London. What is it you do there? What is your research about? So part of what we do is obviously we get involved in all manner of open heart surgeries um, and also obviously surgeries to replace hearts, uh, transplantation. Um, and that's my particular interest. And so the research that I've been doing is essentially aimed at trying to make as many hearts available for as many children as possible. And uh, one of the things that we often find is that they're just, especially for smaller children, there aren't enough organs to go around. So it's about trying to maximise the potential for for creating that sort of compatibility between hearts and donors and recipients. Yeah. So I guess in this line of work, you must have regular contact with patients and their families. You know, is there, I guess what I'm sort of thinking, is there a patient that has stood out for you over the years, a patient that maybe still brings up emotions when you think about them? Yeah, I mean, there's several, I suppose, um, you know, linked to the research that we've been doing. For example, uh, one is a, a young girl who's well, now 10. And uh, due to her condition, she was on the waiting list for three and a half years for a new heart, uh, which is an incredible amount of time to be for waiting. And uh, due to the technology that we've developed at Great Ormond Street, what we managed to do is to give her a heart that she would had not been previously able to get and so we reduced her actual stay by a year so looking at her and and understanding the impact that that had you know that always sticks in your mind um especially 
in the period after the transplant when she's doing really really well and you know you you can really feel proud that actually you've you've had that sort of impact with them um so that's that's obviously the the you know the lovely side of it we do have a lot of contact with the patients a number of the patients that come to us are incredibly sick so they end up being on artificial hearts and what we call ventricular assist devices which essentially are almost you can think of them as an extra chamber for the heart to help blood go around and you know because they're incredibly sick these patients end up staying on our intensive care units for quite some time and so we get to build up a rapport with the child itself and also their um, their parents as well which um is wonderful as a you know I'm, I'm a parent myself so you you have that sort of bond with them unfortunately not all of them uh, go to plan um, and some can have very very sad outcomes uh, and it, that, that can be very hard you know you, once you've made a connection you know no matter how how steely you pretend to be you you'll always have that that protection over them as you know sort of as a, a clinician as a, as a parent that you you want them to do well and so you know unfortunately when it doesn't go quite well it's uh, you know it, it can it, it can stay with you as, as much as the sort of successes can but i think that's what drives us on to do do better to improve things other people that that don't you know sadly make it um and you know those are the families actually that are very very generous in terms of their donating their time their effort their understanding and and wanting to sort of help push on so it's it's sort of them that help drive us yeah sounds like you've you've, you know you've got a very fulfilling but difficult job i'm not sure i would be able to do it myself i think i'd get a bit too emotionally attached um I remember as well when we last spoke, you said to me that quite often with the backlog of cases, it can feel like you're almost on a conveyor belt attending to one patient after another, which I guess doesn't really allow you to get emotionally attached that much. Do you do you miss that interaction or do you almost prefer having a little bit of distance? No, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, unfortunately it says just the way the the world is unfortunately at the moment where we've we've have to get through all these patients so you know it, almost the the conveyor belt is necessary and you, you you kind of have to just get on and do that it's not as enjoyable when you sort of don't have the contact uh you know you can feel very sort of isolated and you you do the job and the next one comes in you do the job again and you know whilst that's absolutely fine and that's what we're trained to do it is it is rather nice to kind of hear the background, hear the stories to those patients, you know, meet them, you know, rather than when they're just anaesthetized, because uh, some of them are, are real characters. You know, you, it's incredible to sort of, and unless you see them, you don't really understand that even though they are desperately ill, that they're still children with that sort of childish sense of humour and sense of fun, and actually meeting them and getting to know them um, a little bit before the pre-op and also then hopefully afterwards when everything's going well, it just makes it just makes the job more enjoyable, really. Yeah. Do you do you stay in touch with some of them? Do you know what they're up to now after you've you know you've taken care of them? Um, as professionals, we kind of sit a little bit more in the background. So um, most of the people that come through don't really know who we are. Uh, which <laughs> we sort of appear with a load of equipment and then sort of disappear into the night. And um, so we, we tend not to get to know sort of every patient. But there are there are a few that uh, you know you get cards from to to keep updated about what's going on. Um, and uh, you know a lot of them obviously for natural reasons go through the surgeon. Um, but then the surgeons obviously send them on to us as well and so keep us up to date. Which which is which is lovely. Uh, one of my colleagues actually, who's uh, you know essentially retiring now, uh, not too long ago, actually went to a 21st birthday party for one of the patients that he 
first operated on when uh, they were six weeks old. So it tells you yeah, that there are still things that you know, they keep in touch. And so we have we have got that. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, not enough. <laughs> yeah, it's really powerful being able to give someone their life back. It's, it's just it's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my next question, you know, back to you being a perfusionist, which I love saying, it's a really good word to say. <laughs> um, you are the first ever perfusionist to be a BHF research fellow. How does someone become that? Like, did you always want to be a perfusionist? So tell us your story a little bit. <laughs> uh, no, in fact, uh, I'll let you into a little secret, really, is that when I actually applied for the job, I didn't actually know what it was. Um, <laughs> so this was, so many years ago, I, I started uh doing i've always been enjoyed in science and um I, I quite like taking things apart and putting them back together and finding out how they work so um that has always been sort of my personality type and uh, so a few years back i, I went into science and i did uh, genetics uh, as my sort of primary degree genetics and microbiology actually and i had the idea that uh, well once I finished the undergrad, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go on and do a PhD because, you know, it always teaches you, you know, some good skills that are transferable and then you can work out what you're going to do. And I continued that, went into the labs. And whilst, you know, it was very interesting, don't get me wrong at all. It, it just didn't suit my sort of, I suppose, personality type. Um, I, I found myself at sort of two or three o'clock in the morning uh, plating out cells in a sort of drafty, uh, you know, fume cupboard. And I just thought this, this, this isn't really what, what I want to do. It's not, not me. So I decided to sort of actually step sideways and find something else to do. And I just happened to be uh, looking around on the Internet to, to see, you know, try and find some inspiration in life and uh, happened to come across this advert for a perfusionist. And um, my, my wife, she's my girlfriend at the time, but had been doing her anaesthetic training and was in cardiac theatres. And she said, well, I've just seen them. They have these, you know, huge machines that uh, support in, you know, et cetera, et cetera, told me all about it. And I thought, well, that sounds quite nice. It, it had what I wanted to do, which was more sort of patient facing, you know, sort of helping people with some of the interests that I had in terms of, you know, taking things apart and putting them back together again. And so I thought, well, you know, worth it, worth a, uh, an application to find out what's going on. So I applied, went down, and as part of the interview process, they actually gave me some equipment and said, well, you know, here's what it does. Now put it together. And I think because I was, sort of, you know, fairly practical, I managed to sort of just put it together. And they said, oh, that, that looks good. All right, do you want the job? And so I said yes, and then off we went. And that was sort of 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't exactly planned, but um, it was, you know, it seemed to work out quite well. And then, you know, sort of later on, I managed to... Uh, uh, sort of cross back over to my sort of original idea of actually I, I do love research I do love doing science so I uh, did my PhD and uh, sort of went from there really um, and then when I did it at the time there were very few people who've done a PhD within perfusion and so it was I suppose quite exciting because you were treading a path that perhaps nobody really had done before um, from sort of my profession so having looked around um, there, there really wasn't anything out there that was, you know, funded, sort of directed at ours, um, our professions. So, you know, it was interesting when I came across the BHF uh, it's Career Development Fellowship for Allied Health Professionals and Healthcare Scientists. Uh, that I thought, well, actually, that that suits me. You know, what I want to do, who I am, um, and you know, I got in touch when it was it was a brand new award out and said, you know, would I 
be suitable you know this is what I do this is where I, I come from uh, and I got a reply you know within minutes saying absolutely it sounds just like you know the uh, the sort of person that we want to apply so uh, you know please please apply I, I did got it and uh, you know, here we are it's great. It sounds like you've become a perfusionist through moments of serendipity, little moments of fortunate accidents. I love it. It's great. It was very much my personality side, but well, you know, let's go down this route and see what happens. Um, and <laughs> actually worked out quite well. It sounds great. It sounds as well like you've had to cross a lot of boundaries to get to where you are today. What, what yes. would you say is the biggest challenge you've had to overcome and how did you do it? Um, I think the, the biggest thing is sort of stepping into the unknown uh you, you've all these things you you can start off going down a route and think you know this is where my life is heading and then when you can you suddenly sort of step into that situation where as i, I did when i was doing the original phd uh, with the you know, the cells and I, I suddenly thought well actually i'm this is not where i want to be going and actually to sort of take the decision to actually no i need to, to change direction I think that took a bit of strength, mainly because you, you you almost feel like you you're letting yourself down or you're stepping into the unknown, and so that was sort of the first part of that sort of crossing that boundary of like well, I just need to step out and, and work out what I want to do. Um, you know, <laughs> some would say I still haven't worked out what that what that is yet, but um, I'll let you know when I do. <laughs> but um, but in the, these sort of things that, that you sort of go through. But I think you know, as you said, crossing boundaries that that sort of where I think my my career really has has gone and and continues to go is, uh, you know, you you go in one direction and then actually other avenues open up and it's it's have that strength to say actually this could be quite interesting I'll go this way and if it doesn't work well it doesn't work and you can go backwards or or sidestep again and change direction but it's that that idea of actually if you branch out you're creating more opportunities for yourself and actually you're then bringing what you know to a different realm and applying it slightly differently which is um which a is interesting and b it's um good fun it opens up new new challenges new doors yeah it sounds as well like your type of job you know when you step out of the office when you step out of the operating theater you've got a lot of pr- you you must have a lot of proud moments in your career you know saying at the end of your working day i've done some really good work today what are if you had to choose one thing that you're really most proud of in your career what would it be Oh, that's a that's a hard one. I mean, yes, and you know, I think you. I'll answer in just two seconds. Is there are two things to the job. You know, there are incredible highs, and there are devastating lows with what we do. And you know, it's you either swing from one to the other depending on how things go. Luckily, there's not that many lows, and there's far more successes these days. I think the the proudest point for me, and as I said, you know, I'm I'm a dad, and you know, I know it's like with having children it's that when you go back up to the unit after the operation especially when it's been long and and you know complicated and you know you've really had to sort of be on your a game as it were in order to sort of get this child through it go back upstairs and seeing them when they're awake again you know they're happy they're you know they're no longer blue for example um in terms of the you know they've gone off oxygen going around and you're seeing them with they with their parents and for a lot of them you think well actually I won't need to see you again, which is uh, you know a lovely thing as much as anything else, because you think that you uh, I've given that parent a child that is now you know in all intents and purposes they'll be able to go home and have a normal life, and I think that that to me is probably the thing that I'm sort of most proud of in my sort of day to day job, and being able to just give that give that sort of present of a future, um, if that makes sense. You're making me quite emotional over here. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a great job. 
Um, yeah. So uh, there's been a lot of successes in this line of work as well over the years. I mean, the fact that you can go in, operate on a child and they come out at the other end and they live long, fulfilling lives. Is there anything, if you, if, if you were to take me to your job in 10 to 20 years, how has your job changed? What is, I guess, completely unfeasible now, but might be saving lives in 20 years? Well, I suppose if, if I start off by saying well, what's changed in the last 20 years from where we were, I mean, the machinery use is almost completely different, you know, very similar principles, but you know, the size has decreased massively. Um, one of the most telling comments that actually was a, uh, one of my surgeons made many years ago was taking off the drapes to see the child underneath. And we just made a you know sort of a fairly radical change that you know again reverberated around the world and changed the way we did paediatrics and, to, and not having to give them as much fluid and other bits and pieces. And the surgeon opened the drapes and saw the child underneath and just said, "It looks like a child." One of the things that happened because of very many things that these child you know, children become incredibly you know edematous and, and swollen with a lot of fluids and they they almost look like sort of balls of you know a fluid filled bag which is a horrible thing to see i mean they did very well afterwards but you know it took a long time to recover whereas that was sort of a quantum leap in in what we'd achieved from that point on sort of to now you know what would i like to see in the next 20 years um to be honest me out of a job would be the best thing and then that sounds tough but you know with all the things coming along with you know what we can do with stem cells um you know this sort of idea of personalized medicine using artificial intelligence and you know sort of creating drugs that are specific for each person you know it would be wonderful to get to the point where actually i don't i'm not needed anymore because we've sort of eradicated you know, you know congenital heart disease that would that would be ideally where i'd like to see it um whether it will happen in 20 years who knows but uh that's that's where i'd like to be it would be great wouldn't it but i guess a little bit off tangent but what would you do if you end up without a job what 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 <laughs> what are your aspirations for your future Oh, yeah. Um, things that I said, you know, because I, I've made a career sort of out of crossing boundaries and such, you know, that doesn't worry me. Um, you know, to, to a lot of extent, one of my research now involves quite a lot of the ideas that I just put forward in terms of using artificial intelligence to to work out, you know, why things don't go quite as well, how we can improve things. And, um, you know, so I think regardless of where it goes i'd still be doing something along those lines uh, in, in a few years time it, it may be designing the drugs to actually help or it might be trying to work out how to best deliver those drugs or or what diseases create what problems further down the line but uh, i'd probably never be too far away even if it wasn't with a sort of clamp and a, and a load of tubing in my hands it's <laughs> great the sky's the limit then for you isn't it well, yeah, it's it's one of those things. That I just enjoy sort of what I do, and and like I say, you know, seeing the children, especially when they're they're getting better than anything else, and you just think, well, I wouldn't want to do anything else, which is a, a kind of very fortunate position to be in. Yeah, that's lovely. Thanks for sharing that with us, Richard. Um, we find that a lot of people who choose a career in research have a personal connection to the cause. Do you have a story? What? Why did you choose a career in pediatrics? Uh, yeah. I've always been sort of, I suppose, a big kid at heart, which always helps. So, you know, when I was younger, I, I lost a younger brother um, when I was nine. And my parents uh, set up a, a little charity to help. It was for uh, children with cerebral palsy, um, helping them to feed themselves and get involved. So I've always had that sort of uh, background to what I want to do. And I've always 
from that sort of point of view and from what they've instilled is is want to want to help people want to want to make things better i suppose and because you know because we dealt with the children of the bits and pieces that seemed to be all kind of the natural way to go you know a lot of the diseases that we get as adults is, is i don't say it's our own fault but uh, it's, it doesn't help with the the burgers and the the beer and everything else that we consume that, that half the time cause it whereas with a lot of the children they they get it because of the genetic diseases it's not something that they've you know they've got because of life choices they have no choice they just get this and so for me that was always where I wanted to to treat because I wanted to give them a, a chance of having some normality having the chance to to make the wrong decisions as we all do to but actually have that opportunity to, to grow up and uh, you know that's that's kind of what's driven me and, and why I do what I do I suppose yeah so it's, it's really great to be able to speak to researchers like yourself. You know, last year we celebrate, the BHF celebrated its 60th birthday. And just being able to speak to someone like yourself, you know, and reflect on the last few decades of research, it's amazing. And in terms, I know you've touched upon this already a little bit, but in terms of your field of research, what are your dreams? What are your hopes for the future? What are you hoping that will, you know, not just in pediatrics and congenital heart disease, but in general in heart and circulatory diseases, what, you know, what would you hope will happen in the future? Well, you know, it'd be, it'd be lovely to see, you know, if we look at paediatrics first, you know, it's almost eradicating the, the different diseases that lead them to, to have these issues, you know, like I said, you know, whether it be gene therapies or any things that will, will alleviate that. But even if that's not possible, getting to the stage where we can do, you know, some amazing things with transplantation, for example, uh, you know, there's been a recent uh, the xenotransplantation with a pig, you know, if we could sort of develop something like that or, you know, just be able to make more donors and more uh, recipients compatible so that, you know, people don't have to wait for a new heart, you know, as a treatment option, that will always be uh, of, of some sort of benefit. Um, you know, looking at, uh, you know, a lot of what we do in the future is avoiding heart failure, being able to make sure that people understand how to live healthy lives and you know keep their heart health until uh, a lot you know older age these are the sort of things that you know i'd like to see see more of and, and i think that will happen i think there's some amazing research going out when you look back at sort of the sort of milestones that have come around over the last sort of few decades uh, you know they're gathering pace there's more great research going on now than there ever has before and you know in part that's due to the fantastic funding that through people like the bhf where they're raising the funds in order to us to do these things um you know it's just it's incredible time to be involved in the subject really yeah do you have any advice for listeners wanting to get into this line of work someone you know who has never heard of a perfusionist and now has decided actually i've listened to richard talk about his job he does an amazing job and i want to become a perfusionist myself what would you say to these people I think the best thing would be to uh, go online and look up the Society of uh, Clinical Perfusion Scientists. And if you can, and you're able to get in touch with your sort of local sort of centre that does uh, heart surgery and see if you can talk to the chief perfusionist there. Because uh, quite often, you know, in Gretelman Street, for example, we do days where we invite the public in to come and see what we do. Um, and we can sort out, uh, you know, having a, a day visit or something so you can actually come and see what the equipment is like, understand what our, our sort of working life is uh, and get a feel for whether or not it's something that you'd like to do. Um, and but like I say, it's, from my point of view, it's a fantastic job it's a fantastic profession um it's, it's a great way to spend your life uh, if you, you know, if you're going to do a job do it properly so uh, if, yeah get in get in touch go and have a look and uh, see what you think 
I have a feeling that after this interview comes out, there's going to be a lot of people wanting to do this job. So, so yeah, keep a lookout. <laughs> right. Keep the young people, keep them on my toes. That's the main thing. Yeah, that's great. Um, and do you have any last words for our listeners, you know, our supporters, our BHF supporters? I think the only thing I really can say, and this is from all the people that are funded by the BHF, no matter what uh, sort of area of research, is it's a huge thank you. You know, I get to talk to you because, you know, I'm doing the research, um, which makes me sound like the hero. But actually, the heroes are the people that actually raise all this funding. We, we can't do any of the research without the monies that the BHF bring in. And so to everybody who gives, who helps collect it, who, you know, goes and does uh, some <laughs> completely mad things in, in order to raise money for charity, you know, we, we have to salute you and say a huge thank you. You know, without you, none of this would ever be possible. Thanks, Richard. That's, it's an exciting time for science, isn't it? It's, and it, it's, it is, yeah. Yeah, and it has been really great having you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you. Each day, around 13 babies in the UK are diagnosed with congenital heart disease. This means the heart or the large blood vessels surrounding the heart have not developed properly in the womb. Often we don't understand why the baby's heart hasn't developed properly, but we're funding research to find crucial breakthroughs so we can improve the way we diagnose and treat babies, children and adults born with congenital heart disease and beat the heartbreak caused by these conditions. Before the BHF was founded in 1961, the majority of babies born with congenital heart disease died before their first birthday. Now, thanks to research, we've helped to turn this around with 8 out of 10 babies surviving to adulthood. If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF's Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Monday to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email helpline at bhf.org.uk. You'll also find lots of useful information in the episode notes and on our website bhf.org.uk. See you next time on the ticker tapes.